I have here tonight's shares being sponsored by Leo and Kapil Shweli. Yeah. Uh, Yubona and myself want to thank them for their support for Torah. And they should be blessed uh, in all, in every which way a person can bless. Uh, also, I also want to uh, dedicate besides uh, that this year should be a merit for the health and success of the families of Regina Bas Yosef Ruvain and Yeshaya Ben Yisrael, that it should be a merit uh, in, uh, for these families. Okay, <clears throat> tonight really, um, most people, if you ask them, what is Judaism about? Right? That's like, uh, everybody knows, right? What Judaism is about. It's about the Tariq Mitzvahs, basically, right? It's about doing the 613 commandments. Among, and there are obviously 613. Uh, so there's learning Torah, right? Uh, there's Limit Torah. And um, doing all the mitzvahs, everything. 613 commandments. So that's what most people would answer. Hi. That's a person I know for... Uh, Sixty years, wow. Can't believe I'm that old. <laughs> anyway. <clears throat> What's always, I find always interesting is when you're reminded that you're getting older, right? Then the question you always say to yourself is, okay, we all get older. It's a lot better than the alternative, obviously. But the question is, where did all that time go? Like, what did I do in all that time? That's the real question you want to ask, you know, because that's a very important question. So wake up in many ways. Anyway, uh, so in any case, most people would answer that. They would say, well, Judaism is all about doing the mitzvahs. Are they right? Somewhat. Not really. I shouldn't say not really. I mean, obviously, Judaism is about doing the mitzvahs. I mean, that's obvious, you know, and so on. <clears throat> but if I asked you, for instance, you know, you walk over these guys, right, uh, that are, uh, let's say, building a house, and you have this huge uh, crane, or whatever, you know, and you ask the guy, you know, what's the purpose of this crane, or this derrick, whatever you want to call it? So they'll tell you, you know, if they answered you, well, the purpose of this crane is to dig a hole to make a foundation. Would they be right or wrong? Well, they're right technically, in detail, but they're really wrong. Because the purpose of this crane or derrick is to build a house, part of which requires that you dig a hole for the foundation. You see, so there's always layers, or what's called perspectives, of what a thing is about, depending on which layer you want to enter. Judaism is the same thing. Most people think, as I mentioned, that Judaism is about doing mitzvahs, and they're correct from that perspective. But what is Judaism really all about? Most people don't know. It's amazing. Something so central to their lives, they really don't know. And their answers are usually very superficial, and so on. 
because Judaism is not about doing mitzvahs, although that's obviously a central idea in Judaism. But as we will see, the concept of mitzvahs is an instrument. It's a trigger, that's all it is. But that's not what Judaism is about. And what I want to do in this year is lay out what it is. Really get to the bottom. So when you leave here, you will really understand what is the Rabbanu Shalom doing, really? What does he really want? You know, it's what's called the bottom line. You know, that's the uh, term that they use. What is the bottom line, really? And so on. And that's what I really want to talk about, <clears throat> to give you that understanding. Um, well, let's take a look at the divine plan, basically on a more superficial level. Uh, and you will see where the mitzvahs fit. So let's start from the beginning, the bottom line. First question, I mean, we believe in God, right? We know that he created the creation, we know that, but why did he do it? What's his motive? Everything has a motive. Human beings operate on the concept of purpose. If there's no purpose, generally speaking, people don't do anything unless they're crazy. And they, then, even then they have a motive, but the, the motive is internal. It's psychological. That's not uh, obvious to most people. But everything has a motive. That's where we were designed. So we therefore can ask, uh, what is the motive of the Rabboni Shalom, really? And it's a very interesting concept to think about that, and so on. What can motivate God? And the answer is really very interesting. The reason why God did everything, and I mean everything, is what's called hatava, to bestow an infinite state of goodness on a human being. That's it. It's like somebody looks at you and says, you know, I really like you. What would you like? 100 million? 500 million? And you're just sitting there, you're flabbergasted, right? Uh, right? That's really what God did. He said, what would you like? That's what he wants. He wants to give us the best possible gift that he can deliver. And God can deliver anything. I mean, if God decides to make you, give you benefit, you can't believe the benefit that he can come up with. And that's what I want to talk about. But in any case, now you may ask me, wait a minute. So the motive of God is hatava. How do we know this? Because it says in the Torah. It says, to do good in your end. You see, and we, we know the Chazal, uh, that tzaddikim sit in Ganeden or Ilm Habo, and they are called Nenin. They benefit from the Divine Presence. Nenin miziv They benefit from the Divine Presence. And that's all they do, you see? Uh, and that's really the purpose of creation. Why did he do that? I mean, there's a motive of a motive. You know, my, in other words, there's a, what's called a direct motive, the immediate motive, fine. But what's behind the motive? You see, <clears throat> for instance, people go to work, why? Because they have they want to make money. That's how you make money these days. Uh, although if you check some places in America, you don't really need to do that anymore. You can just steal. This is beyond belief what was going on, which I talked about. Uh, but generally speaking, it's uh, to make money. But that's not why you go to work. You go to work to fill your needs. You gotta eat, drink. There are many psychological and physical needs a human has. 
And the only way you can get that, basically, is you have to have money to purchase the ability. So there you are. So there's a motive, but then there's a motive of the motive, you see? That's where human beings operate. So we can ask, why did God do that? I mean, he's got, I'm sure he's got plenty things to do with his time. Sounds funny, but uh, I'm sure. But um, the answer to that is very in interesting. We don't know. God never revealed to mankind why he wants to do this. You know, of all the things he could have done, why do you want to benefit mankind? You see? And, and the fact that he wants to do that is really an incredible thing because he can do whatever he wants and he can do it in whatever measure he wants, which is really incredible. We don't know why he wants to do that, right? But we do know that that's what he wants to do. That's all he revealed to us. You know, the motive of the mo motive is whether we can understand it or not, but it's beyond probably human comprehension because it probably goes into the, the concepts of the Ainsoif, the infinite being, God had the infinite mind, and so on. But in any case, so that's purpose, Hatova, which is, Hatova means goodness, simple. Now, the question is, okay, I'm okay with that. What's the goodness, right? Now, since God, why does he want to do good? So essentially we say, right, he's, he, he is a good being. Good beings tend to want to do good, right? That's what we say, that God is a toiv. He is a toiv, which means that he's good. He's a good being, right? Therefore, he wants to bestow goodness on, on humans. Uh, so it's certainly consistent with his nature. Very important idea. But what's interesting also is that if God wants to do good, right, that he wants to do it in the best way. Because we say that God is perfect. He's a shalim, you know, and you really have to think, what does it mean to be perfect? It's a very interesting concept, the concept of perfection. What does that mean, you see? But in any case, he's perfect. Therefore, the goodness that he wants to bestow on humans is perfect. Wow. Uh, so that means you can walk over to God and say, is this the best you can do? You know, which just sounds like an interesting question. And God will say, yes. It is the best. And I want to tell you something. It is the best. There's nothing that can beat it. You see? Now, if I asked you, it's a very interesting concept. If I asked you, let's assume God, in the middle of the night, he enters your dream, which he does sometimes, right? And he says to you, I want to give you a wish. One wish. Right? Ask it, and I will deliver it. You see, what would you ask for? What would you ask for if he told you, I want to give you whatever you want? So then you have to think about, well, what do I really want? And remember, you only have one wish. That's it. Don't waste it. What would you wish for? I'll tell you what I would wish for, right? You can all think about that. Money, fame, wealth. I mean, everybody's got uh, some... Uh, dream of what they want, right? Uh, but I'll tell you the best of all. I think it's the greatest of all, right? I would say to God, if you want to give me the best that you can do, I want to be exactly like you. 
I want to be God. Or I want to be a God, whatever. But I want to be just like you, the ability to do anything, right? And therefore, I'm not dependent on you. I'm not dependent on anybody, and I can do whatever I want. Right? That would make the most sense. Uh, so that's the question. It makes sense, right? And since God has to do perfect perfection, because he is perfect, and therefore the goodness that he wants to bestow must be perfect. So the question is, did he do that? Is he going to make me into a god? It's an interesting question, isn't it? But you see the logic of my request. And the answer is, I'll tell you something very interesting. That's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to give you the ability to be God-like. Because you can't be him for certain reasons. But you certainly can be God-like. Very interesting concept. So in the end, that's what it is. In fact, David Amalek says that in Tillam on the third day, we say, capitalism, uh, you know, that uh, you are like gods. It says there openly, right? Uh, that's what God wants to do. Now, what does that mean? That we become God-like in the best possible way? <clears throat> well, first let me explain this. What is the greatest gift you can give? Or what is the greatest gift that you have? If you had to thank God for anything, right? What would you thank Him for? What is the greatest thing He ever did for you, right? And everybody's got uh, different ideas. But I'll tell you, the greatest gift he gave you was existence. Being. That's it. The difference between being and non-being is there can't be a greater difference than that. He gave you existence. You are. You are a reality. That's incredible. Because the opposite of that, of course, is that you don't exist. And that's the worst thing of all, because you don't exist. Uh, that's the greatest gift of all, is existence itself. That's what he gave you. But what is interesting, and there's a lot that I obviously am leaving out, because in many ways it's a very profound topic, you know. If we ask ourselves, who is God? It's a whole understanding, a whole sheer which I once gave. Um, and you can look it up on my website or YouTube or whatever. Uh, but the, the greatest idea of God is that God, if I asked you, does God have existence? You would say, of course. Right? And I would say, you're wrong. God does not have existence. He is existence. Tremendous difference in the words. What does have existence mean? Right? We have existence. It's not, existence is not us, but we, whoever we are, have it. And therefore we exist. Right? We have existence. But we are not existence. We are not the phenomenon of existence. It can be taken away from us. And it is, very often. It's taken away, whatever that means, death or annihilation, however you want to interpret that, you see. But God doesn't have it. It's not something which He has. He is that. Tremendous difference. And therefore, since he is existence itself, right, therefore he can do anything because he can make exist anything because he is it. So if he wills something to be, somehow 
he takes part of himself and makes that. It exists. You see, now we don't know how that works, obviously, but it's logical. If he is existence, then he can do, he was called omnipotent, called Yochel. He could do whatever he wants. He could make exist anything. The only, the, the only uh, resistance is his own will, if he doesn't want to make it. But once he wants to make something, it will be, because that's what he is. You see? Therefore, it's interesting. In Oilam Habo, the future world, right? And I'm doing this because I want to interpret what is the Hatova that we will get, what's called in Oilam Habo. What is it? And the idea to that is this is that in the future world, you will feel your existence itself. And what is your existence? God. You don't realize that. You emerge from his being. Yet you're not only completely unaware of that. We don't realize this. We don't feel him, really, right? Yet the relationship between you and God is that you are part of him. In fact, everything is part of him. He is your existence. If he would remove his existence or his being from you, you would instantly annihilate, instantly, you see. So that's really who we are. We are, we are a shutfus in a certain sense. It's us and God. But he is so central to our existence because he is our existence. And therefore, what he wants you to do in the future world is to feel him. I shouldn't use the word feeling. It's better if I use the word experience. He wants us to experience him. And what is him? Him is being in itself. And we don't even know what that is, you see, because the experiencing of being we have, but we don't know what it is. You, you, you don't know what is your existence, and so on. But what God wants to do is he wants to allow you to experience Him. And that is existence itself, you see. And there's a very interesting idea that comes out of that. Everything in the universe has what's called degrees, levels of quantity, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Degrees. Everything has degrees, right? There's only one thing that doesn't have any degrees. Existence, as they say. You either is or you ain't use good English, right? You either exist or you don't exist. There's no middle. There's no middle at all, you see. But what happens if you could be in a place that you could experience different levels of existence? Now that would be interesting. We don't even know what that is. Is it possible to exist more? As far as we're concerned, no. You either exist or you don't exist. How can you exist more? I'm not talking about being stronger or smarter. Those are the qualities that existence allows. But that's not existence itself, right? But imagine if you could actually exist more. That's in Ilim Habor, you see. And that's what we experience about God. Because when we experience levels of existence, what we are really experiencing is God himself. Because he is existence. That's really what you experience, you see. Now I realize this is abstract, but it's worth hearing this, because you can go through your whole life and never hear this at all, you see. And therefore, Oilam Habba is nothing more than a place 
that you actually can experience existence more and more. And apparently, Olam Habo is an infinite upward climb. It never ends. We know, right? It's eternal. But what are we experiencing eternally? God. We are experiencing existence more and more. But we don't know what that is, you see. <clears throat> and really, in many ways, uh, the Chazal say, Chazal say that everything that, uh, that uh, prophets, right? When a prophet would prophesy, so we would understand that, right? We can understand the prophecies, right? So the prophecies talked about, the prophets talked about the things that we can understand. But in terms of ilm habo, the eye has never beheld what is an ilm habo. There is no being that exists that knows what ilm habo is at all. The highest angels have no inkling about ilm habo. You see. Now that's an interesting chazal because um, the language. It says, the eye has never beheld. What it should have said, right? Is the moyach, is the mind had never comprehended anything like that. But it doesn't say mind, it says I. That says that really we could know what it is at a certain level, right? What is that? In other words, we can know the concept of existence, but we've never experienced it, you see? So therefore, the eye has never beheld levels of existence. It's interesting from the way Chazal talk about this. In any case, that's the Hatova that God wants to give. It's unbelievable. And the interesting thing is the more you experience His existence, the greater being you become. Because, you know, once you're experiencing Him, you're experiencing His existence, right? You emerge from that existence that is Him. And therefore you grow in being. We don't know what that is. You see? So, <clears throat> The more Olam Haba that passes, the greater is your sense of being. And like I say, we have really no idea what that is. But that clearly is the greatest gift that God can give you, because to be is the greatest gift, period. So that's the Hatava. Nothing beats it. Okay, now, next idea. God has to make a decision. He can give it to you as a gift, or he can give it to you as a payment, a reward for some type of effort that you do. He's got to make that decision. You see? In other words, is Oilam Habo a freebie, as they say? Or is Oilam Habo the reward that you get for doing some task? And what God did, He's decided, okay, that you must earn this future state. You have to work for it. He's not going to give it to you for free. And that is an inviolate law. That is an absolute law, okay, that cannot be violated. But it can be helped, assisted. So everything that God does for us, does assist us to get to that level, you see. But you must, you get only what you earn. And there's a reason for that, which is a whole understanding in itself. Uh, because... <clears throat> What God doesn't want an individual to experience shame. In Chazal it's called Nahamadik Sufo, which is the bread of shame. What is shame, really? 
It's an interesting emotion. In fact, shame is the most devastating emotion of all. Right? Maybe you can argue with me and say, wait a minute. The most devastating emotion of all, really, is inferiority. Lack of self-worth. Okay? Uh, but shame is a close second. What is shame, really? <clears throat> and it's a very dangerous emotion. What is shame? I'll tell you. What shame is, is when a person experiences a sense of vulnerability or a sense of um, diminishment of who he is, he feels ashamed. You see, uh, you know, it's like just an example. You imagine you go to a gym, right? And you're, you're, you're in your gym suit or whatever, right? And you see these guys walking around, you know, 48-inch chests, right? I mean, these guys look like, like statues, right? And then you look at your own body, and you, I say, I can't believe this. You know, yeah, me compared to them, it's like a, a little doll compared to this. What, what a physique, you know? And all of a sudden, you feel ashamed in front of them. Why? You feel embarrassed, ashamed. Why? Because... You know, they look great, and you look like a little scorny uh, little guy, right? But the shame is really you, because looking at you compared to them, it, uh, what it awakens or makes you aware of your own inferiority, how diminished you really are. You know, what a, what a real, you know, uh, like I say, inferior being you are. That's shame. Shame is the recognition and the acknowledgement and the cognizance of your own inferiority. And the emotion that accompanies that is called shame. Bad, bad emotion, you see. Especially growing up, you know, if you have parents that abuse you, you know, uh, one of the most devastating emotions is that you're ashamed. Why? Because you don't say that they're crazy. You say there's something wrong with you or else why would they, behave, why would they be behaving this way toward you? It must be that you're a bad kid or there's something wrong with you or you're non-functional, you're incompetent, or whatever, inadequate, whatever. And then you experience what? Shame. That's what you experience. It's a very devastating emotion, very bad for, uh, you know, and a lot of kids unfortunately suffer, and so on, especially if they're ridiculed in class, or if they're beaten up, or whatever, without getting into all that, right? Uh, therefore, God says, in order to get Elam Haba, to experience me, you must be like me in a certain sense. And what, what, what am I? I'm not diminished in any way. I'm perfect, right? <clears throat> not only that, everything that happens to me, nobody controls what happens to me. I decide whatever I want to do. I'm completely independent. In other words, I am the true cause of my behavior. Nobody gives me anything to me. I'm independent, right? I am completely, I'm a true cause. This is what uh, the nature, one of the ideas of God, right? So what God wants you to experience that feeling that you're a true cause. That's why he decided that you have to do something in order to get Olam Haba. So you will feel like a true cause. Because if you didn't do it, you would not get Olam Haba. You would not get the future world. So the fact that you need to cause the future world, right, is an attribute that, that only God has, that he's a true cause. You know, something will happen only because he did it. No other reason. 
So he wants you. You want to experience me, God-like? You need to cause your own oilam habbo. That's what it is. That's why, in a very simple way, we need to work for oilam habbo. You see. And that's an, like I say, it's an inviolate law. It must happen. You see, there's no freebies. Again, because God wants you to, to be like him. You need to cause your own situation. And that's really what happens. So that's the decision he makes. Now, what's the next decision? By the way, this is the unfolding of the divine plan. It's really what it is. I'm just telling you the, the what do you call it, the, the evolution, so to speak, of where all this is going. <clears throat> now, the next thing he has to do is do what? Well, I gotta give you a task. Because if there's no task to do, right, then you have caused nothing. Obviously, in order for you to cause something, there's got to be something to do. So I have to give you a job. The problem is a job, right? What do you mean by a job? Nothing to do. Everything is created and perfect. So God says, I'm going to create a situation. I'm going to create a deficiency. And your job will be to remove the deficiency. That's what he does. What is the deficiency that he creates? You see? <clears throat> so it's very interesting. And this idea is really the pivot that Judaism is about, you know. Very important idea. I'll give you an example. Imagine, guy's walking down the street and he sees a Brinks truck. Now we know what Brinks does. Brinks is an ar ar armored truck and they take money and they bring it from one bank to the other, whatever, right? They're money carriers. Right? So a guy's walking down the street and sees a Brinks truck in front of a bank. So all of a sudden one of the guys, and they're carting, you know, uh, sacks of bills, $100 bills or whatever, right? So one of the truckmen, the people bringing the money in, says to the guy, uh, you know, we're short-handed. short, we're short Maybe do us a favor uh, and uh, help us bring in some of the cash. And say, wow, not bad, you know? Uh, so the, the guy says, okay, take some of these sacks and bring them to the safe in the bank. And if you do that, we'll pay you. We'll give you a nice uh, reward, right, for doing this. So you say, okay, you know, if I don't have the money, the next best thing is to touch it, right? So you bring, take the money, you got your own sacks, and you bring, you bring it into the safe, you know, where they put all the bills and so on, you know. <clears throat> Finally, after about an hour, and you slept in, like, you know, uh, 20 sacks, you know, $100 bills, whatever, right? Uh, so you finished, they finished, and you walk over to them and say, okay, I finished. What's the reward for this? So the guy says, where's the money that you uh, stacked up? So you take the guy into the safe, right? And you say, okay, you see those 20 bags in that corner? That's my work. I put those bags there. So the guy says to you, okay, those 20 sacks that you put there is yours. That's your reward. Right. It's astounding. You see? What does that mean? That means the task itself is the reward. You know, what the guy did becomes his reward. It's not something else. Well, you did this, I'll pay you. You know? The task itself is the reward. In other words, imagine then the guy says to himself, what, am I crazy? If I would have known this, I would have brought more sacks into the safe because it's now mine. That's what God does. What God does is very interesting. He says, listen, 
I am the best experience, right? In Olam Habo. Therefore, the amount of God that you gather is what you will receive in the future world. You see, the task is identical to the reward. That's exactly what he does. In other words, since I am the, the experience that you will have in the future world, here's what God says, <clears throat> okay, therefore, the more you gather of me, the more you believe in me, the more you dedicate your life, right, to doing, to believing in me and so on, that amount that you dedicated is your reward. It's identical. Interesting. It's really very simple when you think about that. You know, if God doesn't write you out a check for something that you did, that what you did becomes your reward. Now, obviously, if the guy knew that, he would have said, wow, if I would have known this, I would have spent every moment of my waking life doing this. You know, oh, that's why it's important to know this. So, therefore, the task becomes what? God absents himself from the creation. And he says, find me. The more you find me, the more you get of me. Simple. Very simple idea. That's what he does, you see. Uh, so he creates a world through a series of steps in which he is absent. We don't see him. We don't know him in that sense. You know, he's concealed. And the job is, well, find me. And the more you attempt to find him, right, the more you dedicate your life in realizing the reality of God, that's the reality that will be yours, which you caused in the future world. Very simple. That's called Mida Keneged Mida, measure for measure. You see, what you labored for, that becomes your reward, measure for measure. It's not something else. And therefore, we realize that the task is, or rather, the situation you find yourself in is a world that is devoid of the presence of God. Devoid, really, when you think about that. There are ways to figure it out, and there are, and so on. But you've got to think about that. You have to really work at it, and so on. And therefore, the measure for measure is, well, you get the exact amount in the future world that you labored to find in this world, in Oilam Hazeh. So the definition of Oilam Hazeh, this world, is a world that God is absent. It is devoid of his presence. Really very simple. And the future world, you see, and now, since God decided that uh, in order to get him, so to speak, you have to labor, right? Then obviously there's a time of work and then there's a time of reward. So he's got to split the two times. One is called Ilm Hazeh. That's the world of work. That's when you got to find him. And then there's Ilm Habo, the world of reward. They have to be two different periods and two different places. And clearly they are both very different natures. The world of Oilam Hazer is a, basically a world of absence of God. And the world of Oilam Habo is a world of complete presence of God, of which we cannot even begin to fathom, you see. So you have Oilam Hazer, you now know what it is. The essential idea of Oilam Hazer is that God, his, his presence is absent. And the world of Oilam Habo, he's completely revealed. And even then, not completely, but you grow. It's an eternal quest to be more and more attached to God. 
Very interesting. Now, we now know what the, the situation is, right? It's called Hester Yehudoy. Hester means concealment. Concealment of his oneness. Because God wants you to know not that, that only that he is. He wants you to know the nature of his being, you see. And the essential nature, and there are several steps in this, is that he is Enoid Mavadoy. God doesn't exist. He's the only thing that exists. And this we don't realize because we see many other forces, many other powers, and we have a sense of self. So we don't realize how pivotal, how central he is to the entire reality that we experience. We don't realize that, but that's part of the search. We need to find that out. Not only that he is, but how is he? What is he? And so on. What is the relationship to the reality called Ilam Hazar? You see? So that's what the search is. And then, therefore, the task is, right, if the situation is Hester Yehudoi, the concealment of his oneness, right, then the, the goal is Gilo Yehudoi, the revelation of his oneness. There you are. That's fundamentally what the divine plan is, you see is to search, to fulfill that, and then measure for measure, you get that in the future world. Now, the question is, okay, what do I do? How do I do that? Now, it's very easy to say, well, okay, I believe in God, no problem. You see? And a lot of people say that. You know, I don't have to really do anything. Hey, God, I know you're there, and that's the end of it. But that's not what God wants. It's interesting, that's not sufficient, you know? It's very easy to promise, it's very easy to say things, right? But when it comes to demonstrating it, it's a whole different story. So God says, it's not enough to say that. I want you to demonstrate that. Because never look at what a man says, look at what he does. Because that's the key to what he holds. You know, don't be fooled by what people say. Yeah, I did this, I did that, no, no. Forget about that. What are you actually doing? It is the doing that indicates what you believe in, you see. And that's why God said, you know, it's not enough to say, I believe in this. You gotta demonstrate this. You gotta demonstrate the actual belief. So how? And the answer is, I'm going to give you a series of mitzvahs, commandments, right? Guess what? You need to do the commandment. And those commandments are gonna pit you against me. And you'll find, that all the mitzvahs demand that you sacrifice something. That's what it does, if you think about that. Mitzvahs, ostensibly, interfere with your life, right? You walk by, you know, you're in, uh, you know, you're in Tel Aviv, right? you're in, you know, and all of a sudden you walk by and you're starving, and you smell this restaurant, unfortunately. I shouldn't use Tel Aviv because it's Jewish. You walk in Manhattan, you smell, and there's a delicious steak. But you know the steak's trafe, right? So God is interfering with, hey, I want to eat that steak, you know? So that mitzvah, don't eat trefa, is an interference in your life. You've got to express, well, do you want that? In other words, do you want to listen to God where he says, don't eat it? Or you want to listen to yourself and say, hey, I want to eat that. God commandment pits him against you. Very interesting. 
there's always a conflict in a mitzvah. Why? Because that's the way you demonstrate what you really believe in. Like I said, forget about what a person says. It's what he does that demonstrates his belief. And God says, you need to do something. What are they? To observe the 613 commandments. Because each one of those commandments is going to challenge you not to do it. So if you do it, what are you really saying? I believe your will is superior. You see? Or I believe you are the only being and therefore I have to submit to your will. Every mitzvah that you do is basically a testimony, edus, that you believe God is supreme. You see? Very interesting the way God set it up. You see? And that's why there are mitzvahs. So it comes out that a mitzvah is nothing more, I shouldn't use the word nothing more, but it's essentially, right, the wherewithal to express the belief in God of Enoi Mavadoi. That's, that's all it is. That's the act that God wants you to do. You see? And if you express that idea, right, that God is supreme, and therefore I will submit to His will, right, then you will get God in Elam Habo, measure for measure. That's why we have mitzvahs. It was purposely designed that it will challenge you. It will make you submit, subdue your ego to God's will. That's the whole point. That's why it says, Lefum tsaro agro. Right? If you want to know the reward of a mitzvah, right? look at the, what's called the Messias Nefesh. What do you have to give up for this? Because the more you have to give up, right? the greater is the statement of belief that God is supreme, right? And the greater is the statement that I'm a nobody. It's His will that counts, right? And therefore, the reward is greater because you've demonstrated something which causes pain because the mitzvah says, do me not what you think you want to do yourself. It's really what it does. It, like I said, funny way of looking at a mitzvah, a mitzvah interferes with your life. But the paradox is, is that that's the only way to get life. That's the paradox of all this. You, know, you need the interference in order to get the future world, which is life. Eternal life, that's what it is. You see? I want you to think about this. It's like, you know, the simplicity of it, if that's what you want to call it, is it's absolutely brilliant. You know, it's, uh, it's off the charts, what, uh, how God arranged it. Now you understand what a mitzvah is, the Tariyag mitzvahs. Uh, you see, because God wants you to demonstrate in action that you believe that He is supreme and therefore you must submit, subdue yourself to His will. But what happens if a guy doesn't do mitzvahs? You know, a guy doesn't do enough mitzvahs. So is he doomed? And the answer is, of course not. Because like I said, you must submit to the will of God. However, the first way to do it is with the mitzvah, right? We see, we see the logic of the mitzvahs, you see. So you have to do that. And there's no way around it. But what happens if a guy doesn't do that, you see? So God said, I will give you another way. And that second way is tshuva, repentance. What is repentance, really? Where a guy says, you know, I testified, right, I, that I'm supreme because I did the sin. I ignored God's commandment, you see, but I repent. 
I regret that I did it and I won't do it again. So that's what's called a retraction of the testimony. You said when you did the sin, it's me, right? And therefore I can do whatever I want. But you retracted that testimony, right? By doing what? By repenting and regretting what you did. Therefore, tshuva is also a declaration, you see? Because it's painful to say I was wrong. You know, it's painful. It's against your nature to admit, A, that you were wrong, and B, that you're a nobody, that you should have done his will. It's the same concept. It's challenging. So therefore, God considers that as if you did the mitzvah in that sense. So it erases the sin or the statement that you made that I am supreme. You see the logic of tshuva? It's interesting. That's why tshuva works. Because it's the same mechanism where you admit, I regret what I did and I was wrong, which means that God is right and His will is supreme. It's a reversal. That's why tshuva works. You see, it's the admission of sin, A. B, not only the admission of sin, right? That's what's called the vidui. It's also the regret, the charoto, right? And the third idea is the kabbalah al-osid, I won't do this again. But you now see that a mitzvah and tshuva are really identical in what's called the underlying principle. But wait a minute. What happens if a guy doesn't do tshuva? Right? The tshuva doesn't do the mitzvah. It does averis all day long. Right? So what's God going to do for him? And remember, you must declare God. Right? Or else you don't get oilam haba. Like I said, because God wants you to be like him, that you are the true cause Right? Which he allows you because he gave free will. Okay, so what does God do? So God comes up with a third device. What's the third device? It's very interesting. The third device is called suffering. Yisurin. Suffering. Now you're going to ask me, wait a minute. That guy suffers, and believe me, we all suffer at different times of our lives, different situations. You know, everybody goes through this, right? Uh, what does it do? Why is it a declaration that God is supreme? Because you suffered? So what? Right? What I'm asking you, where's the mechanism? Remember, the principle has to always be the same. What's the principle? That God is supreme. Well, when a guy suffers, you know, where's the declaration? And this is very interesting. When you think about it, What's the, can, who are the contestants of your action? And what is the contest? The contest is this. Who is supreme? Is it God or is it me? We war with God. You don't realize that. We are born trying to feel like we're somebody. That's a whole lecture in itself. The search for worth, the search for a sense of self, Right is ongoing and never stops, you know, <clears throat> uh, never stops. We're always, we don't realize how unconscious that is, the concept of self. And that is really what challenges God. It's only really me or him. That's really what it is, you know. That's what uh, the contest is always. And therefore, the challenge is to do what? Either you deny self, where you can say, who am I, Right? Or you promote God and say God is supreme. But denying self is halfway there. Because what stands in your way? The fact that you think you're somebody. 
well, if I'm somebody, right, then I'm God's equal, or I'm also great besides him, and I can do whatever I want, right, which is an aver and so on. That exists, you see? So what God wants, therefore, is a very important concept, you know? You must admit that you're nobody. That's the concept. And therefore, you're halfway to realizing, well, if you're nobody, then he's a somebody. Because that's the challenge. Is it you or him? So if you deny you, then he emerges as the victor. Then it's him. Which is interesting. Even if you don't say you're the one, even if you just say I'm a nobody, without saying it's, he's, some, he's everything, you still have accomplished half the task. You ever wonder? You, you walk into a hospital, you know, and there's a guy that you know who's worth half a billion dollars, right? And he just had a heart attack, whatever, and he's plugged into every known tube and device, right? He's in the CC, he's in the CCU and so on, right? And he's plugged in. You ever look at this guy, what he feels about himself at that moment? He knows he's a nobody. Because if you were somebody, right, you pull out all the plugs, all the tubes, and walk away. So therefore, suffering is the greatest indicator that you are a nobody, really. All it needs is the right situation to bring it out, you see? Uh, but a classic place, a hospital, a doctor's office, Soros, whether it be divorce, bankruptcy, you can't prevent it, it happens. So that's the biggest proof that you're a nobody. Because if you were really somebody, you could stop it, which of course you can't. Not if God doesn't want you to. Uh, therefore, suffering is an, it enables you to realize that you're nobody, really, deep down. Oh, that's half the battle. You see? Even if you didn't realize that God is somebody, but at least you realize you're a nobody. And that's already part of the battle, the war. Who do you think you really are? Because that's always that which interferes with knowing who God is. You see? That's the concept of suffering. That's one. The second dimension of suffering is when you sin, there's a certain pleasure that you get, right? The pleasure is not only the pleasure of the sin, but it's also the pleasure of exercising your will. See? I do whatever I want. You don't necessarily have to verbalize that, but believe me, you feel good when you do what you want to do. The exercising of self is a tremendous sense of pleasure because it makes you feel like somebody right and so on you see so therefore that concept the pleasure that you get from doing that which you want to do and if it's against God is pleasurable and God says you must atone for that see if the sin is the exact opposite of the pleasure it reduces the, it removes the pleasure you see it's like tit for tat you you experience pleasure by doing your will right well, I'm going to give you pain, which is the exact opposite of the pleasure. So one undoes the other. So you have two dimensions in suffering. One is the realization of who you really are. See? And the second thing is the reversal of the pleasure that you experience doing what you want to do. So there you are. That's the mechanism of suffering and why it has the same principle as tshuva and mitzvahs. And that's why, therefore, there are three methods 
of getting into Ilam Habo. And by the way, getting into Ilam Habo, which we'll talk about, right, is called Tikkun, to rectify. Because ultimately what you want to do, which I'm going to talk about, is you want to bring God back. That's called Tikkun. You rectify, you repair, you correct the situation. So the way to do the Tikkun is either Mitzvah, Tshuva, or Yisurin. And I've told you what the principle is of all three and how they are really identical. Just three different forms. That's all. <clears throat> now, in the end, which is interesting, this is summed up. How is it summed up? In Shema Yisrael. What does it say in Shema Yisrael? Shema Yisrael, here Israel, Hashem Lokein, the Lord our God. Hashem Echad, the Lord is one. And that one doesn't mean he's one, right? What that one means, he's absolutely one. He, in fact, he's the only one. That's really ultimately what it means. And what's interesting, which Chazal bring out, is the last letter of Shema is Ayin, right? And the last letter of Echod is Dalit. And they're always written large. So if you put them together, Ayin Dalit, it spells aid, witness. Because you're supposed to be testifying that God is one. And if you reverse the letters, you have Dalit Ayin. And that is Da. That's what you'll know in Olam Habo. It says that in the Shema. That's what it's all about. You need to testify to that belief, right, by being challenged by the mitzvahs. And when you testify, that's the reward you get. That's, that's basically the divine agenda. It's interesting. It's a plan, right? And that's basically what God wants. I've boiled it down to very simple ideas. And the truth is each idea can be you know, amplified into a whole shear. But that's it. Now, the next thing you have to ask is, okay, now what? Okay, so I've done the mitzvahs, right? But I've done the mitzvahs and I'll get Oilem Habo. But how does that work? How do I get Oilem Habo? What transpires, you see? Uh, what's the physics of getting Oilem Habo? It's a very interesting question. And that's what I'm going to show you in terms of how it works. <clears throat> there are five levels of reality. There are five levels of reality. A very important concept. One, and I'm going to tell you what the levels are, and then you will understand exactly what your mitzvahs do. There are five levels of reality. And what differentiates one level of reality from the other is to what extent is the nature and the presence of God revealed. The greatest reality of all is, of course, God. If you were to be in his reality, whatever that is, it's called the Ain't Soif in Kabbalah, then you would experience a reality that we cannot even comprehend. Because Ainoid Mavadai means, or Ain't Soif, infinite, but it's infinite in the sense that God is the only thing that exists in that reality. There is nothing else. You see, that's when you would gain, basically, a full measure of the being called God. 
Then what God did is he created a self, the neshama. The neshama is the greatest reality other after God. And that's called a zulosoi, an other. You see, because in the reality of Ein Soif, there is nothing else but God. Besides God, there's nothing else. Literally. Now, we don't understand what that means. But what God did, famous idea, is he, Tzimtzum, he contracted himself, not literally, but in a certain sense, and he allowed the existence of an other, an other being, which never happened before, you see. And that other being is the Nishama. The Nishama is the greatest creation ever made by God. You know, we walk around sometimes asking ourselves, who am I? Nobody. Eh, what's my life? I'm not doing anything. But you don't realize, you're walking around with a, a neshama, right? That's greater than the malachim. There is no creation that rivals you. It's amazing when you think about that. You know, and everybody has problems trying to come to grips with who they are. You know, if they would know this, that you are really a neshama, that is the second reality that God created the neshama, the soul, right? And that reality is the greatest of all realities because it's the first thing that God created. It's called the zuloso, the other. That was the other he made right after him because his reality is, right, he's the only one. That's the concept of a neshama. Now, that's the second reality, the reality of the neshamas. Then there's a third reality. What reality is that? The malachim, or the spiritual entities. The neshama is not even spiritual. It's a, f way, it's a strange way of looking at it. We are greater than all the spiritual beings combined. A malach cannot comprehend the neshama, you see, because there's God, and then there's the zulosoi, the other. What is the other? The soul. Then God created another reality, level three, which is called Ruchnius, spirituality. That's what it is. So the world of the Malochim, the world of all the angelic figures, is a third reality, which is lower than the world of the Neshama. So that's the third reality, you see. Now God is not spiritual, which is interesting, and the Neshama is not even really spiritual. We don't know what the Neshama is. But the neshama has to be what it is because the zelotsoi in oilam habo, the neshama in oilam habo has to, be, has to be what it is in order to experience God. See, an angel can never experience God the way the neshama can because it's like a, a coin, you know, if you think of it that way, you know, the heads of the coin is the shechina, God, and the tails of the coin is the neshama. It's really the same coin, just two different sides. Malachim don't have that ability, you see. The Neshama is distinctly, the Oilam uh, Habo is distinctly a world that really only the Neshamas can experience that state called Vekas, you see. So what are the Malachim for, the, all the angels? They are emissaries, they're messengers. God created a kingdom, because he doesn't want to interact directly with humans, which is the lowest reality, you see? So he created a world that he has messengers, agents, emissaries. And that's the world of the angels. They do everything, you see? Now, they have no idea who God is, 
but they are completely infused with the presence of God, even though they have no idea who he is. You see that from Kedusha, you know? Uh, where is he that we can praise him and so on? They don't know. They just know, but they are infused with the reality of God, that they do. But they don't know where he is, who he is, what he is. They know that it's a being that's beyond comprehension. So you have three realities, right? You have the reality of God, which is infinite, ain't safe. You have the reality of the neshama, which is the zulosoi, the other. And then you have the reality of the angels, right? Those are different ilamas. Then there's a fourth reality. What's that reality? Geshem, physicality, physical world. You see, uh, God created a world which is not spiritual, which is physical. And that world, according to scientists, is 13.7 billion light years. Light years, 6 trillion miles, and that's how big it is, which is beyond belief and so on, you know. But it's all physical. It's all predicated on the 92 elements or whatever, and so on, you see. And what he did was amazing when you think about that. He took a physical substance, right, and he encased the neshama in that substance. So the neshama is placed in a physical body of which it cannot escape, you see. And that body forms the beginning of what's called Hester. That's the challenge. You are physical, God says. That's what you think you are. Uh, so God takes the greatest creation ever made and puts it basically in the lowest creation ever made, which is the physical universe, you see. And the neshama cannot escape. And God says to the neshama, you need to find me in that situation. So the world of Geshem is the world that God created and put the neshama in, you see. Then we have the fifth level, which is very interesting. And that needs an entire understanding. <clears throat> That's the world of the Sotan, the Zoyama, the Sotan. There is a universe called the Satanic Place universe. You see, it's an actual place, but it's invisible. It's, it, in a certain sense, is the opposite of spirituality, but it exists. And it's inhabited by many malochim, but they are destructive angels, okay? And it, of course, is inhabited by the Sultan himself, you see. <clears throat> now, the original place is where you had the Neshoma in Geshem. You had the Neshoma inserted into a physical universe. And the task was, well, I want you to break out, even though you are in that universe, right? And I want you to figure out who I am. I want you to figure out the reality of not only the angels and the neshama yourself, but you got to figure out my reality, which is the Ainsaif. That's what he did. And that was Odomarishim. The first man was exactly that reality. He was a reality called physical, right? And he was a neshama, phenomenal neshama. But that's all he was. And what did God want, which is very interesting. In the beginning, before God uses a certain instrument, okay, and Kabbalah describes it as ten spheres. There are ten elemental forces. Nobody knows what they are, but they are of a nature that they can create reality. Obviously, behind them is God. 
because nothing can, nobody can do anything without the reality of God. But the idea is that these ten spheres create all the realities. You see? Now it all depends on the strength of those spheres. That's what they're called. You see? If they emit a certain fire, sparks, energy, they can create a reality. If you dial it down, then they diminish reality. So what God wants, and this is what you begin to understand what the mitzvah really is. Uh, the mitzvah, besides doing what I told you it does, which is enables you to demonstrate, right, that you can challenge God or accede to his mitzvahs, right? But what the mitzvah does, it's a dial, it's a trigger. If you do a mitzvah, somehow it interfaces somewhere in the spheres. It opens up the sphera, and all of a sudden the light that comes out of the sphera becomes enormous. And it changes the physical world into Ilum Haba. That's really what it does. This concept where God wants the mankind, specifically the Jewish people, and this is the real tikkun, He wants the Jews to emit or to increase the wattage, the output of these spheres, and they will change the physical reality into a ilm habo. It's called zikuch. He will actually, the light of the spheres can actually take the physical universe and change, become transformed into ilm habo. That's what it is. That's called zikuch. And a mitzvah is what does it. Every time you express a mitzvah or tshuva, right, you can actually change the amount of, I use the word wattage, coming out of the sphera, right? And that wattage will take some aspect of the physical universe that that is connected to, change it into a spiritual universe. Very interesting. It's called zikuch. That's the purpose of the mitzvah. That's its physics. You see? Why? Measure for measure, right? You do a mitzvah or you do tshuva, which is a recognition or an admission that God is supreme, right? Therefore, you enable the spheres to change the physical reality to reflect that God is supreme in the Oilam Habo. It's measure for measure. Same idea. That's how a mitzvah does it. A mitzvah is a device, a trigger, that will emit a light of the spheres, and that sphere will uh, radiate much greater energy spiritual energy, and change physical reality into a spiritual reality. It's called zikuch. That's what it does. It transforms a physical reality into a spiritual ilm habo. You now know what a mitzvah does. And like I said, you understand the principle of the mitzvah, right? The mitzvah declares that God is supreme. And therefore you will create, by changing the physical world, into the future world, that is the world that God appears supreme, measure for measure. That's what, so the mitzvah, therefore, becomes a vehicle where it actually can create Oilam Habo. You see? In fact, Oilam Habo doesn't exist yet. Well, in a certain sense it does, because the potential exists. But the actual Oilam Habo doesn't exist yet, because we have to change this world into Oilam Habo. Right. If we don't change it into Ilm Habo, guess what? It doesn't happen. 
In other words, we need to cause ilm habo. Very interesting concept. That's our creation. And we do that by doing a mitzvah, which declares God as supreme. Measure for measure, it allows the sphera to change the physical reality into a reality that allows God to appear supreme. There you are. So that's what a mitzvah does, you see. And there are 613 parts to the 10 spheres. They are all the parts, right? Therefore, every time you do a mitzvah, you change one aspect of reality. And every Jew is connected to only one area of the physical universe. That's it. You come here, you're born, you've got to do a certain amount of mitzvahs, right? And every time you do that, your set of the ten spheres, which is connected to your nishama, will change the physical reality, you see. Now, if you don't do it, if you don't do the mitzvah, and you don't do tshuva, guess what? You'll do it through suffering. Because suffering will also change the reality. Because you recognize that you're a nobody. That's what suffering basically is. It's a state of being a nobody. You see? Uh, so therefore, you need to do it. Every Jew is assigned a specific area in the physical creation. Uh, and he, therefore, can change his aspect into ilm habo. Uh, if he doesn't do it, then he's got to come back and finish the job. It's distinctly unique uh, that every Jew has his place. You see, and that's why it says, Kol Yisrael chilek li'ilim habo. Every Jew has a chilek in ilm habo. Has a place, uh, a place in ilm habo. Why? He's got a place in ilm habo that he has to create in order to get there. You see? So it's more than the fact that, well, I got a palace waiting for me. No, 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 no. You got a palace in potential waiting for you. You got to make the palace. Uh, you see, what God gives you is the plot of land. He says, okay, I'll give you a plot of land. I'll give you all the material, the bricks, you know, the beams, you name it, right? But guess what? It's just a bunch of material. You got to put it together. And the only thing I can put it all together, which is to make your item habo, right? is the mitzvahs, or the tshuva, or the yisur. Got that? Very important concept. Uh, and now you begin to understand what Judaism really is. It is a vehicle to transform one reality into another through doing mitzvahs, tshuva, or yisurin. And the essential principle of all of these is they challenge you to say God is supreme. And Oilam Haba is a place that you experience the supremacy of God. Now, isn't that simple? Isn't that interesting how simple it really is? You see? But you ask yourself, wow, is this what I really thought about the future world? Was this my view of, of Judaism before? And of course not. Because, you know, it's not taught that way, but this is really what it is. You now understand, you know, what the necessities are. You understand the underlying principle of the Avoida, which is the mitzvahs or the tshuva or the yisurim. You see, you understand the mechanism, the physics, that you actually transform, you see. Now, there's one more part which you have to understand. It got messed up. Uh, God did not want Adam to sin, obviously. He was supposed to do the mitzvah. It means don't eat from the tree, right? That was his mitzvah. He only had one mitzvah to do. And he ate from the tree, he and his wife, 
right? So this being who's an angel, a malach, you know, uh, the, 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 the sutton, the mouthpiece of the sutton is the snake. And he's trying to convince Chava, what was his argument? His main argument was, right, it's a pleasure, but the real argument is, hey, you can be like God. Wait a minute, isn't that the essential conflict? That's what the whole game is all about. Are you God or are you not God? And the Sutton, of course, he knew exactly what the conflict was. What the real challenge is, man wants to be God. In fact, mankind is busy either in thinking he's God, overthrowing God, right? Right, overthrowing him, uh, or, or just getting rid of God, whatever, and so on. And the Sutton knew that this is what man's desire is. Because the whole avoid of, of Jews, of mankind actually, is to do this, is to find God, and therefore you will get Oilam Habo. You have created Oilam Habo. So the Sutton says, you will be like God. That's the bottom line. In that one, in that, you know, two words, that was the bottom line. <clears throat> so what happened was he convinced Chava and Adam, unfortunately, to eat. They sinned. So all of a sudden, they gave power to the Sutton, you see. Now the Sutton, it's a great deal to talk about, but the Sutton is a very interesting malach, very interesting malach. What happened is he gains by the power given to him by man. Why? Because what does man do if he sins? He declares that there's another being besides God, and that's me. Well, if you declare that there are other beings besides God, then you also declare that there are other beings also, like the Sutton. You've empowered the Sutton to exist. Because that's what you really said. That there are others besides God. So you're one of the others. And the Sutton is also one of the others. And that's what he's always trying to convince you. That besides God, there's you. You see? That's what the Sutton is always doing. So what happened is the Sutton changed. It empowered the Sutton. And he has a certain force that he projects. That's called Zoyamal defilement or uh, pollution. That's his, it's like an octopus with tentacles. The tentacles of the Sultan is called Zoyama, you see? And what Adam did by sinning is it gave him power. And all of a sudden he developed tentacles in that sense. And he was able to do many, many things. You see, one of the things he did was he entered the physical creation. He was not part of the physical universe. It's very interesting. The universe before Adam sinned, you had, like I said, the physical universe, and you had the satanic place. It's called the Sitra Achra. When, when Adam gave him that power because he gave existence to evil, then the Satan grew tentacles, which really means he grew force, power. And he was able to enter the physical universe, which is the universe inhabited by Adam Arishim. So now the Satan enters the mind of Adam, and guess what? He's your guest. He's a 24-7 guest. Can't get rid of the guy. Because he is now part of the fabric of the physical universe. And you can't get rid of the guy. Uh, so his Zoyama is now part. And guess what? Is there a physical manifestation to this? And the answer is yes. Because what's the job of the Sutton ultimately? Is to destroy. Because that's what he wants. He wants to destroy you, take power over you, right? 
and take things that you have, holiness, for himself. In any case, so what happened is, he now envelops your neshama because your neshama is part of the physical body. And you can't get rid of the guy. There's only one way to get rid of the sultan. Die. You need to die. The zoyama will not leave the physical body until the person dies. This is the problem. And the problem is this. I said that if a person does a mitzvah, originally he was supposed to bring down the light of the spheres, the energy of the spheres, and convert the physical universe, right, into Oilam Habo. The problem now is, is that the Satan is part of the physical universe and it shields the neshama by enwrapping itself in the physical body. Therefore, if a man does a mitzvah, right, it no longer releases the aura of the spheres. The credit is given, but there's no release of the energy, you see. And that release is what we're, 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 we are waiting to do, uh, you see, but it won't happen. But it does happen in the Messianic era. So right now, if we do mitzvahs or tshuva, right, or whatever, yisurin and so on, we can release energy, but that energy of the spheres does not affect the physical universe anymore. Because a sudden, the zoyama blocks it. But it is stored as your credit. It's like a bank account. You know, you don't have the money, but whatever money you have is stored in your bank account. All the energy that you release from the spheres, right, is in your spiritual bank account to be released on the day that the zoyama is gone. But that will only happen in the Messianic era. When Mashiach ben David comes, right, what's going to happen? Then the Mashiach ben David is going to kill this guy, literally. He's going to annihilate the Sultan. And with the annihilation of the Sultan, then the zoyama of the physical universe is removed and eliminated. That's why you need a messianic era, to destroy evil. That's the essence of the messianic era, is that evil is destroyed. And once that happens, the zoyama is gone. And once the zoyama is gone, then all of a sudden, uh, the world, which now becomes purely physical, then they take out all the energy of the account that you have, and they allow it to shine, and bam the whole universe begins to change. You see? So the Messianic era is a restoration of all the Mauritian before the sin. That's really what it is, you see. So the world returns to the state of pure physicality without Zoyama. Therefore, if you shine the spheres on them, guess what? It changes because there's no more blockage. And that's what happens in the beginning of the Messianic era. But it goes in stages, you see. There are certain things that happen in the Messianic era, and that is the annihilation of all the satanic forces, all evil. And that's why the prophets talk about the whole concept of a Messianic era, how great it is, you see? Uh, and then it changes, and it takes, without getting into why, uh, two, it's actually 3,000 years for it to totally change. Uh, so the world ends in 22, I should say, the year 6,000, six days, the world will last for six days of creation, which is 6,000 years. It will end in the English year 2240, and that is the year 6,000. And then all of a sudden, all the light of the spheres will emerge, change the physical world into the next world, which is called Oyum Yisira. Then the next thousand years will go into Oyum Bria. That changes. Then it goes into Atsilas, and from Atsilas, which is the 
upper world, it goes into what's called Adam Kadman, Kabbalistically, it goes into Ilam Habo, and never changes. You see, so we have a problem. Adam originally introduced a satanic force that was never intended really to be. It happened because of the sin. But that wasn't the original intent of God. The original intent was to be there are six days of creation. Adam, Mauritian, and Chava were created on the, seventh, on the sixth day. And they were supposed to do what? Not sin. So that would have meant that the light of the spheres that they would have emitted because they did the mitzvah, if they would have done the mitzvah, that would have been emitted and that the physical world would have immediately begun to change into Olam Habo or the spiritual world, the evolution. But since Adam, Mauritian, and Chava introduced the Sultan, he made the Sutton, the reality of the Sutton, real, and therefore the Sutton was able to have Zoyama projected. There goes the blocks. And we are working to restore the world to the days of Adam Rishon before the sin. That's really what we're supposed to do. We're trying to bring the world to the original state, which is Adam and a physical universe, nothing more. Uh, and that, you see, that's what really, the whole avoid does to get rid of the Zoyama. It's amazing. That's how central that Zoyama became, you know. It's to get rid of the Zoyama, and then as a result of that, the Sutton is annihilated. No more Zoyama, which means no death. Because why does a person die? Because of Zoyama. Uh, remember, Zoyama is a, uh, a, a, a spiritual force that can kill you, and it does. And if you ask yourself, well, what's the physical component of that? And the answer is telomeres. I don't know if you, if you know it, but every time a cell divides, a cell can only divide 49 times, which is very interesting. That's it. When, when it do, every time it divides, there are things at the end of the cell, the chromosomes, whatever, that diminishes. Every time it divides, one less. Divides, one less. And finally, when it divides 49 times, there's no more telomeres, and then that cell dies. You see, and that's death. And who killed it? The Sutton. So there's a physical mechanism that actually is controlled by the Sutton. And there are other physical mechanisms also, you see. So what happened is when the Sutton became energized or a real, uh, when he got a reality, the world changed. The world became uh, subject to death, which is a satanic zoyama on the physical universe, right? And there's other things, this concept of the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, that all energy states diminish unless you give a new energy, that's satanic. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Remember, death was only introduced after the sin of Adam. And it was introduced because he sinned. Right? And when he sinned, he gave power to a new being, satanic being, with a different... And that became merged with the physical universe. And now we're stuck. So our avoider now has been to get the world back to what it was in the time of Adam Mauritian. Isn't that interesting? So the Messianic era really is the time of Adam Mauritian restored. It's really what it is. Because there's no Zoyama. And then all of a sudden, the energy of the spheres will come down and uh, change, transform the world in its slow process. And then we get to Ilam Habo and so on. Now, I've s skipped a tremendous amount of information. But what I've given you is a basic understanding. Uh, you see, you're no longer superficial people, surface. You now understand what the divine plan is. You understand the principles of the divine plan. You understand the concept of the tikkun, 
What does God really want? What does a mitzvah really do? You see, how do you get Oilam Habo? You understand the physical mechanism and you understand the problem that was created because of Adam Rishim. You see, now history is nothing more than the ongoing attempt of mankind first and then Jews second to do away with the Zoyama. Uh, you see, and that explains, there's so much that it explains and so on. Um, and that's basically what, 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 what has to happen. To get rid of the satanic world mixed with the physical world and to bring the whole world to a physical world, right? With just physical and spirituality and then get rid of the physical and get into what's called the spiritual world, which comes next. And then from the spiritual into Ilm Habo, which is the eternal world where we will experience existence itself which is the greatest pleasure that can ever be. So there's a lot to look forward, right? A lot to look forward to. But, and now at least you have an understanding of the basic structure of Judaism, you see? And um, we are very close. I mean, I gave a shear here actually, two weeks ago, of the current events and so on, you know, where we are very, very close, uh, really to the end of the insanity taking place not only in America, but also in Israel, in the entire world, the insane. The world has gone insane, and so on, you know. <clears throat> but if you think about it, it goes back to what I said. What's the essential motive of the world? If you had to have a bottom line, what is it, what, what's happening out there? Ever wonder? Like there's a lot of evil stuff, crazy stuff, you know. But is there a bottom line? And the answer, of course there's a bottom line. Uh, you know what it is. Because I told you what it is. Man wants to feel supreme. That's what it's all about. Everything that's happening today is a demonstration of, in Hebrew, perikas oil, to overthrow the yoke. Mankind wants to overthrow the yoke. Of who? Of God. He wants to throw God, overthrow God. He wants to overthrow, right, uh, the values of God, the morals of God. It's all in the Torah, right? To such an extent where they are denying their own biological reality. I mean, it's beyond belief what these guys are doing, you know? You know, you can't use the word he or she and all this kind of nonsense and so on, you know? Um, and uh, that's what it's about. It is the, the last generation before the Mashiach is what? Is the worst generation in terms of overthrowing God. But wasn't that the fundamental principle in the first place? Isn't that amazing that we're back to the original contest of who's the boss? Is it us or is it God? But the amazing thing is that people are so crazy that they're willing to deny reality, right? Their own gender in order to say, hey, I'm the boss, right? Yeah, of course I'm a guy, uh, but I'm not a guy. I'm a girl, you know? It's, it's, it's unbelievable. You, 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 we have no idea what's, what's happening in America and so on, you know? But they want to control totally the physical universe. Deny God everything. And that isn't what not the original contest. Is it God or is it us? It's all over. And that's why, by the way, you're seeing it now. Because right next to the Mashiach, the Messianic era, this is the ultimate contest. Who is the boss? That was always the contest. Uh, you know, always the contest and so on. And right before the Mashiach comes, when all of this will be revealed that only God exists, right? Then the darkness 
the nature of the darkness has to be the ultimate contest. Is it man or is it God? That's why you're looking at a crazy world. Because if what has to happen after, which is the messianic era, then the darkness that comes before that must be about that contest. It's not another idea. It's the exact same business that we've been involved with, right? For 6,000 years, or 5,782. It's the same thing all over again. But the reason why it's so prevalent is because right before the Messianic era, this is the ultimate test. Is it us or is it God? Uh, you see? And what is happening out there is just mind-boggling of how far mankind can go to, to deny the reality of God. So let's hope, right, that this will end, right, shortly, you know, before the world really gets crazy and so on, you know. Uh, um, I, but I want to, you know, I have always, oh, the, 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 the world really it's, it did a brilliant thing. You know, it used to be that the world said, you know, okay, you know, I'm a, okay, I'm a homosexual. Okay, so what, right? So that was a denial of the value. But today, a guy doesn't even say that. He says, I'm not a homosexual just because I like men. Why? I'm a woman. So they got rid of the whole concept of homosexuality. You realize how brilliant that is? They're not men, they're women. That's what they say. So why am I a homosexual? What do you want from me anyway, right? I, what, what a way to evaporate the whole concept of, of gender, what's called fluidity and so on. That's how bad things are. So let's hope that uh, you know, we are going to see miraculous things. And I want to tell you something. We are going to see miraculous things. Because the goal of the redemption can only come miraculously. And that's really the only way it could happen. Um, just like Egypt was miraculous. You know, could you imagine the whole Nile changing to blood? Then we will also see God in a miraculous way. And there's a lot to talk about that. And, and so on, you know. By the way, if uh, I've given Shuram on this, you can go to my website. I'm on YouTube. Just Google my name, Mendel Kesson. Uh, I'm also on TorahThinking.org. And by the way, all my shurma are being transcribed, which means you can print it and read it. And I'm also on Torah Anytime. So you, it's all there, uh, hundreds of shurma. So you can read all the things that I missed in this year. Any questions? We have to do year 6,000. Was I? Did we wait till year 6,000? I'm not, I didn't hear that, what? You have to wait till the year 6,000 or can things start happening now? So my shirt was like year 6,000, it couldn't be now. The transformation. question so we can hear? Well, the question is, uh, do we have to wait until the year 6,000? I'm just repeating your question. Yeah. And the answer to, to that is that the transformation has to wait. But the in inclusion of spirituality does not wait. In fact, what I would tell you is uh, there's going to be a third base amygdash, third, and the Gemara says that that third base amygdash, it will not be after Mashiach ben David, it will be before Mashiach ben David. And what is the third base amygdash? The third base amygdash is really the base amygdash lemaila, because there's a heavenly base amygdash, Right? Just like an uh, earthly one. So the heavenly base amygdala is going to come down, physicalize, and be the base amygdala. That, that, that is the third base amygdala. The incredible thing about that is that that base amygdala will contain the exact same level of shechina, 
that the upper base of Migdash had. And that is the messianic light. You see, so imagine the divine presence, the Shekhinah, of the upper base, base Magdish, which is called Oyle Mitzira. Imagine that comes down and becomes the base of Magdish of us. And we are privy to the Shekhinah of that base of Magdish. You know what that really is called? That's the messianic light. That's what it means. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. As the waters covers the seabed, that's how much ore there will be. And that is really the Shekhinah at the level of the upper Beis HaMikdash. That's why we're all here before the year 6000, you see? But the transformation, Zikuch, of a physical universe, now that the Sutton is gone, will begin in the year 6000. Yeah? But I think you're really asking, because <clears throat> what I think Cece's really asking, because I'm also questioning this, you stated that the world cannot exist more than 6,000 years. And if what, what we've always learned was if we were Zaycha, it could, Mashiach could come before the year 6,000. So if the world is in a terrible state of affairs now. Yeah, that's the dark. Yeah, and we're in 5,782, almost 83. So basically, I think what she's asking, and I'm asking, we're not cycle the way things are now. So she's asking, does that mean Moshiach's going to come in 17 and a half, 18 more years? Is that basically what you're asking? Yeah, in other words, the world has changed in the last five years terribly. Yes. Yeah. So if this question, if the world had been like 20 years ago. Wait, wait. The, the world has different uh, periods of time. The time of the Avoida, the original one, was the six hours of Odom Arishan. That was it. Everything he failed. He had failed it for six hours. Now, that was it, right? Now, the next Avoida was, took place 2,000 years, where all mankind tried to do the Tikkun, which I did not get into. However, for 4,000 years, from Avram Avinu, we have been doing the Avoida of Tikkun. However, that will stop by the Messianic era. The Messianic era is the end of the Avoida of the Jews in terms of free will. There's no free will after the Messiah comes. However, but, but reality does change in terms of that the environment will be filled with the knowledge of God. That is true. But the environment but it won't, has but the physical, so Yeah, but the, but the physical universe won't change until the year 6000. So you can have a physical reality, like Adam Arishan. He had tremendous spirituality, you see. So there are different kufas, periods of time, of, of the level of spirituality uh, in, in the world. Yeah. Anybody, anybody else? Wow. That means everything was understood. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I know that you studied a lot of the works in the Ramchal, and usually the, the Sefer Derek Hashem is studied. I came across a few, few years ago the Sefer Dat Would you recommend studying that to understand the cycle of evil and good and how it comes to perfection to reveal one of the Would I recommend studying who? The Sefer Dat Yes, it's an incredible Sefer. Right, rather than, because I, I find that a lot Rather of than what? Based on that. Rather than what? 
Um, not rather than, but do you feel like it's an important safer to study? Because I know Derek Hashem is the most popular safer to study, generally. Derek Hashem, written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Right, is an incredible overview or outline of Hashkafa, yes. which is a divine plan in detail. However, Dast Funas is a specific detailing yes. of many of the themes of Derech Hashem. Right. That's why it's a, deep, it's a deeper, safer, yes. more difficult to learn, yes. but it is probably one of the greatest Hashkafa Sram ever written in terms of what it reveals. So you really have to learn both. It's not an either-or. One is a more of an overview, yes. and Das Funis is the details. Mm -hmm. You see? That's, That's the difference. Right. Yeah. It, generally, how everything is coming to a perfection, and one is... Exactly. Yeah. So he dwells on that theme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anything else? Anybody else? Yeah. If Adam and Chava had not sinned, they would not have died. Is that correct? Right. They would not have died, but they would also have given birth to everybody else. So therefore, which is interesting, there, when Moshiach comes and there's a restoration of the spirituality, bringing down from the Shemayim to the Haaretz, yes, does that mean that death will no longer be part of living? Right, it's gone. When the Sutton is destroyed, there's no more death. He's the guy that kills everybody. That's his mission, his assignment. Once he's dead, which means once he's annihilated, there's no death. So therefore, there's no disease. There's no death, there's no hospitals, there's nothing. Everybody will be perfectly healthy for their entire lives. That's because the neshama in the guf will be so connected to the shemayim, there's no need for transformation anymore. Is that correct? Because there's no zoyama. There's no uh, zoyama, uh, so the neshama will remain in the guf. Yes, and therefore, until the guf is transformed and, and, at the end. And, uh, Olam Hazeh will be the same thing in effect as Olam Habo. No. Olam Habo, there's no physical universe at all. In fact, Olam Habo is not even spiritual. It's Zulosoy. We have no concept of what it will be. It's beyond comprehension. Like I said, it's the world of pure existence where you experience God directly. So after Moshiach, I will never go back to the I'll no, never go to the Shemayim? No, it's not Shemayim. It's a different dimension. Oilam Habo, let's put it this way, maybe, you know. <clears throat> Where is Oilam Habo? It's an interesting question. Right here. Good. Oilam Habo is here, but it has to be transformed from Oilam Hazer to Oilam Habo. The problem is that what does not allow this world to be transformed into Oilam Habo is the Zoyama, the blockage. If you get rid of the Zoyama, then Oilam Hazer can be transformed into Oilam Habo. Mm -hmm. But it's really here. Mm -hmm. This world is Oilam Habo completely redone, retransformed. Uh, and that transformation is the result of the God infusing himself into this world. It's a world of different consciousness. We don't know, we don't know what that, that is, but uh, you know, what changes essentially is awareness, is consciousness. In Kabbalah it's called Moichen. We lack the consciousness of real reality that is concealed from us. But ultimately, real reality emerges, right? Consciousness changes, you see? And there are stages. Get rid of the Zoyama first, get rid of the Satan, take the physical universe, change it. 
it, and it begins to change in the year 6000. Then from 6 to 7000, the next spiritual world, which is Olam Yitzira, changes. From 7000 to 8000, there's a world called Olam Bria. That changes. We're actually going up the ladder. And then from 8000 to 9000, that's actually what, what it is, right? Then Olam uh, Bria changes into Atsilus, uh, which is actually uh, Atsilus changes. And then beginning the year 9001, that's the beginning of Olam Habo. 3,000 years from year 6,000. But it's a transformation of each universe before it goes up and up and up. So if you look at like, uh, you know, just shell, different levels of the shell change, takes a thousand years, and by the time you get to the year 9001, that's Ilm Habo. That won't change because it, it's all transformed, right? Uh, and, and so on. And by the way, we still have bodies, but it's not physical. It's not the body we know about. It's, a, it's almost like glass. And the neshamas of an individual is completely revealed, the soul itself, you know? And as a result of that, there's no impediments whatsoever for the neshama to reconnect dvekas to the Rabbanu And that experiencing of dvekas is sublime. We have no idea what type of consciousness that is and so on, you know? So it is a, a process, you know, 6,000, uh, 6 to 7, 7 to 8, 8 to 9, and then from 9 and onwards, it's Oilam Habo. But don't think that it stops. Even though transformations stop, but the input of divine uh, presence always goes. It's just that there's no more transformation of anything that can block. You see how it works? It's uh, beyond belief. But don't worry, you don't have to wait till then, you know? You just have to wait, like I say, people are waiting, well, when is the Mashiach coming? Oh, that's not what we're waiting for, believe it or not. What are we waiting for? The turnaround. Right now, evil has been granted total dominion in order to satisfy justice. I gave a whole year about that, you see. So what we are waiting for is when God says to evil, finished. I'm now going to allow good righteousness to succeed. And therefore, that becomes irrevocable, right, and unstoppable. And all of a sudden, what, which is totally flourishes. It's like uh, Egypt, you know, when Moshe Rabbeinu f came finally after the weight and the, and the decree of straw, blood and frogs, he wiped out the, the, the whole country, you know. Good was total. You couldn't stop good from succeeding and evil was vanquished over and over again. That's what we're waiting for. The end of the dominance of evil and the darkness that precedes the messianic era. That's what I'm waiting for. Because once that happens, it's all uphill. The problem we have is that none of this is allowed to happen. Evil has to be given dominance. And that's what we see, right? We see Biden, Obama, uh, China. I mean, you see all these crazies, you know, and, and so on, you know. Iran, crime, it's beyond belief. That's the problem that we're seeing the, the total domination of evil. So we're waiting for the turnaround. You see? That turnaround is everything. Yeah. 
So uh, obviously these things are unfolding. What is, is there an action plan? Is, are there actions that we can take? But there are people of action to facilitate this change. Yes, I will tell you the action. You mean what can we do? I will tell you. <clears throat> I said this in the last year, but it's a very, very important idea. You notice by the sin of the golden calf, right? They all sinned, whatever, 3,000 sinned, whatever, right? So Moshe Rabbeinu said something very interesting. He didn't say, everybody who sinned with the golden calf, you know, uh, do you regret it and so on. He never said that. He said, Hashem Eli, who is with God, come to me. What does that mean? He never mentioned the golden calf, right? Why? Because there's a rivad, Rabbi Avram ben Dovid, the one who argues with the Rambam, the famous Baplukta of the Rambam, and so on. Here's what he says. On Rosh Hashanah, what does God count? You think he's going to check your, he's going to go through your checklist of sins? No. What counts to God is our, are you in his club? Not how many sins you did, because we all sin. As it says, Everybody sins. God knows that, right? What God wants to know is, whose team are you on? Are you on my team or not? You see? Of course you're going to sin. Fine. But the main thing God considers when he judges mankind, whose team are you on? That's what you have to make sure. You always have to say to yourself, I am on God's team. I'm in his club. Now the club has rules. Do the mitzvahs and so on. Right? But the real thing is, are you in the club or not? That's what the Ravat says. And that's what God looks at on Rosh Hashanah. You know, the fact that you slipped every once in a while, fine. I mean, not fine, but you know, okay. But whose team are you on? That's what Moshe Rabbeinu said. Me, Lashem, who is the God? Eli, come to me. What do you mean, who is the God? Are you on God's team? That's the question. You see? So that's what I would recommend. Stay on his team. Don't get off his team. You see? Uh, yes. Go ahead. I want to ask you, do you see some similarity with... Uh, do I see what? Similarity. Yes. With uh, uh, Babel. With uh, Babylon? Who said, who's God? I'm God. I mean, what do you mean there's a God out there, right? So mankind is always involved in one of those three things. They either want to become, overthrow, or they think they are God. That's the essence of the conflict that man has. Who's the boss? You see? 
Is it God or is it me? And that's why the whole concept of Ailam Mahabha is the reality that there is nothing. You are nothing, really. It's all about God. He's a central player. He's the only player. You see? And those three individuals, you know, describe exactly what the conflict is. But I'm asking that, uh, what? Can, can we see that after all this development in uh, thousands of years, that we came approximately with Torah, we came approximately the same situation? Okay. Yeah, because that's an ongoing conflict. Yeah. It never ends. It never ends. I mean, it will end in terms of the... But the, the, the belief that you're somebody never ends. It's a, a everlasting pursuit to be somebody. Hashem created the Satan. He didn't have to. But he had to. Because if he didn't create the Satan, you would have no drive to want to be there. You see? It, it, it was, you know, you have to be challenged. The Satan challenges you. Without the Satan, you just lie back and do nothing. That's why the Satan is the one responsible for your needs and your urges. Without that, why would you sin? You don't have any urge to, to you know. <clears throat> but the argument that the Satan always presents, and this is the essential idea, that you are somebody. That's what he wants you to believe. Because that's a central issue between you and God. Are you somebody? Or are you nobody? Really? And so on. So that's what the Satan always directs. You've got to feel like somebody. You know? Gaiva. That's why that's a fundamental midah. That's why Moshe Rabbeinu, why was he so great? Anivas. Anivas. Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron said, V'nachnu mo. What are we? Nothing. Why was it? Moshe Rabbeinu understood that? Because he had the greatest revelation ever known. Greatest prophet, you see? That's it, in a, in a nutshell. Who do you think you are? Do you think you are equal to God? Or no? You really are zero. He gives you everything, you see? And that's why God says in Ha'azino, you know, Ani, Ani Achaya, I give life. Ani Memes, and I kill. I cure. And from my hand, there's no rescue. God wants to do you in, it's over. You see, because there's nothing that can oppose God. Because he has to give existence to the opposition in order to exist, to oppose him in the first place. That's monumental. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ultimate power, you see, that there is no, it's called in Hebrew, Ein koyach acher. There is no other force. And that's really what disease is. We think there's a virus, right? There's bacteria, there's fungus. No, there's only God. Except God creates that form, but it's really Him. There's no, there's no real thing called a virus, just like there's no real thing called us, except the neshama. You see? It's only God. We don't realize that. You see? It's an interesting way of looking at disease. There is no such thing as disease. It can't exist without God. So really, it's God. That heart attack is God exercising Himself to be a heart attack, that's really what it is. But we don't recognize that. We think, wow, it's really, uh, God just died from a heart attack. You know, <clears throat> and so on, you know. Look, these are things you have to work on. And Muna, and Bitochem, you see. That's ultimately what happens. Wow. Have we reached the conclusion? Okay, thank you so much. Let's hope that this is it. 
this darkness will evaporate. And then, like I said, what is the turnaround? That's what we want. You know. Yeah.